Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you joined us, and we're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Now, as you're aware, there are very few issues issues that are as complicated and fraught with emotion and experience as sexuality. It's something that we all have to deal with at some level, because we are all sexual creatures to some degree, and modern Western culture is especially saturated with sexuality. Now, Christianity is known for many things, but one of the things it's very well known for in Western culture, for better or for worse, is the idea that it shames or condemns a lot of forms of sexual behavior. And the, the ways of sexual behavior that are acceptable are still severely uh, restrained or constrained compared to perhaps what society uh, believes was best. And in the church, uh, sexuality is a 50-ton elephant. It's a source of constant temptation and difficulty for a lot of people. And a lot of people have heard condemnations of various forms of sexual behavior from the pulpit and heard that people who are married need to wait. But rarely do we see a good healthy understanding of sexuality uh, get promoted from respected spiritual mentors and teachers. Now, in the scriptures and in creation, God and Christ has clearly established a healthy sexuality and robust connections between theology and sexuality. That in Genesis chapter 1, God made man, male and female, in his image. And that he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, and that man was to leave father and mother, cling to his wife, the two become one flesh, in Genesis 2.24. That God's divine nature is manifest in the creation, and thus in man made in his image. And John 17.20-23, the father is in the son, the son is in the father, and yet they remain distinct persons. Uh, there's an ancient term used for the description of two distinct persons that mutually indwell each other yet remain distinct persons, and that is perichoresis. So we talk about a perichoretic relational unity within the Godhead. And what relationship most closely approximates that level of unity for humans? It's when a man and a woman, being two, yet become one flesh in Matthew 19, 4-6. And this analogy is made Explicit in Ephesians 5, 31-32 in terms of Christ and the church, where Paul will quote Genesis 2.24 about a man and a woman leaving father and mother clinging to one another and the two becoming one flesh. So it is with Christ and the church. That human sexuality is in fact created good. It has its good purpose in the covenant of marriage of a man and a woman becoming one flesh, and that's a glimpse of the perichoretic unity that reflects the relational unity that exists in the Godhead. That procreation is a consequence of human sexuality, that children are embodied representations of how two become one flesh, and they reflect the characteristics of both father and mother, which is true of all of us, that we are we reflect our father and mother and a lot of characteristics, we share each half of their DNA, and yet we are one. And likewise, God shared in love within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and created offspring uh, made in his image, which is us, in Acts 17, 26-29. And so there's actually a lot in the Bible about healthy sexuality, and it connects very powerfully to how we understand ourselves as made in God's image, and therefore helps us understand who God is. So sexuality is not only important for us to understand to have a healthy sexuality in our own lives, but it represents a very important means by which we understand God. And so it, it stands to reason that if we have a healthy understanding of sexuality, we'll have a healthy understanding of God. Understanding of God. But what happens if our understanding of sexuality gets distorted and warped? it may well lead to a very distorted and warped understanding of God. And our culture espouses very different views about sexuality. And they consider less than healthy behaviors and ideas as perfectly acceptable. And in fact, these days, our society is glorying in brokenness.
that's really a counterfeit sexuality. It's suggested to be good and beneficial and healthy, but it's really broken, degraded, and impoverished. It's made to look good, but it does not have the substance and it does not have the value. It's just a pretender. Now, in our modern society, in 20, early 21st century Western society, one of the key principles of how our culture understands sexuality involves sexuality as identity. In most modern discourse, when we talk about sexuality, a person is whatever sexual predilection they express. So a person is a heterosexual if they desire members of the opposite gender. A person is homosexual if they desire members of the same gender. A person is bisexual if they desire members of both genders. And now there's a, all sorts of other kinds of sexualities. Asexuality, sapiosexuality, transsexuality. And it just goes on and on. In fact, the argument of cultural acceptance of gay marriage is predicated on this idea that somebody has desires for some a member of the same gender, that they are homosexual, they are gay. And it's thus compared to telling them they can't get married when they're gay is like telling somebody they can't have rights because they're black, or because they're uh, Asian, or because they're poor, or because they come from somewhere else. Uh, it, it, it's being used as an identity marker like the rest. And this argument has so completely gained the victory in our culture that to suggest that homosexual behavior is sinful means that you are labeled as a bigot. Because in the minds of people in our culture, if you condemn somebody for their sexual proclivities, it's not much different than condemning somebody for the color of their skin or where they were born. That you're condemning somebody for who they are as a person. And it's very easy for Christians to get caught up in this and talk about people as if they are gay or straight or things like that. And that's why it's important for us to explore this issue of sexuality as identity. And really ask the question, what is our identity? On what basis is it suggested a person's sexuality is their identity? And above all, what has God said about these things? What has God revealed about these things? And how can that inform how we have this discussion in our culture? As we begin, let's look at identity. And admittedly, identity is a very personal and complex phenomenon. Because identity is the means by which we both associate and disassociate ourselves within our environment. And what's going on with identity is our identity means that as humans we're defining ourselves both in terms of and in contrast with other people. And for each and every one of us there is a wide range of potential identity markers. We understand through them who we are in terms of how we are like other people and how we're different than other people. Now identity markers can include but are not limited to species. Uh, geographical origin, and that can be in terms of a neighborhood, a city, a county, a state, or national level, uh, both in terms of origin and in terms of present location, age, birth year, birth order, name, ancestral origins, ethnicity, race, religion, class, income bracket, sports team affiliation, career, marital status, education, both in, ter in terms of the substance, the level, and where, uh, hobbies, uh, pol political beliefs, and yes, sexual behaviors or predilections. Now, identity markers are not static. I mean, if by your age, uh, that's that's going to increase as you get older. Uh, perhaps if you get more money, uh, you you might get uh, a different level of identity than if you have less money, and vice versa, etc. Uh, and very importantly, none of us see ourselves or understand ourselves as in terms of all of these markers equally. We privilege certain identity markers over others 
in general and in specific circumstances for a whole host of reasons. And this is why God so strongly encourages us to prioritize our identity as a Christian over other identity markers, so that our Christianity may inform the rest of who we are, as opposed to letting some other identity marker define ourselves in terms of other things, including our Christianity. And this is Matthew 6.33, putting his kingdom first, his righteousness, that we have died, is really Christ living us in Galatians 2.20. And it's seen evidenced in how we are to treat relationships in Ephesians 5.22-6, chapter 6 and verse 9. And we understand this in terms of ourselves, or others whom we may know. We might put more emphasis on our nationality over our race or our income, maybe. Or maybe we know someone's like us a lot of ways, but perhaps they emphasize their language, their ethnicity, or some other marker more than we do. Now, why we privilege certain markers of identity over others are conditioned by our influences and experiences. I mean, we, we don't have these things in a vacuum. We've been influenced by our families, our educational system, our religious associations, or lack thereof, and by our culture. And a lot of times people are forced to prioritize certain aspects of their identity because of cultural pressures and influences. Uh, and, and this perhaps may explain some of the great emphasis on gay culture or gay identity because that kind of behavior would have marginalized people in, in many generations. Uh, likewise, uh, in terms of being uh, perhaps black or Latino or poor or any number of things where because you are in a certain group that way, other people are kind of pigeonholing you to that group and your situation is limited and others are so defining you by that characteristic of your identity that it's very easy to start absorbing that and, use, and identifying yourself by that characteristic more strongly than perhaps other markers to survive, and to notice other people who are suffering the same experience as you are, and to band together uh, for mutual support and survival. And a lot of times subcultures develop because of that shared identity marker, because it's been marginalized to a significant degree. So yes, we are many things. And while a lot of forces are in play, we do ultimately still decide what elements of us we're going to emphasize and privilege over other aspects of us. So in light of that, what is this relationship between identity and sexuality? And again, in our culture today, it is taken as a creedal gospel truth that people are a certain kind of sexual. That people are straight, or heterosexual, gay or lesbian, or homosexual, bi, or bisexual. That's the GLB of GLBTQ, or LGBTQ, depending on the particular way it's being put. Uh, thus, people are defining themselves, or define others by their sexual predilections. Now, this idea has not always been so. And in fact, by common admission, on all sides of this issue, it's recognized that defining people in terms of their sexual behavior has only, like, in this way, where somebody's identity, their sexuality is based on their predilections, is no more than 200 years old, really a feature of the Victorian era. Beforehand, sexuality was understood primarily in terms of the expression of the behavior. A person lusted for a man or a woman, or, and or committed sexual activities with a man or a woman, or perhaps both. And so the scriptures, by necessity, are going to speak according to this perspective. No one in the Bible 
and this is very important, no one in the Bible is justified or condemned for having a certain kind of sexuality. A person in the Bible is justified or condemned for how they exercised their spiritual desires. In Romans chapter 1, 18-32, Paul talks about how God gave people over to do things according to unnatural desires. It's all about what they're doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 through chapter 7 verse 9, uh, Paul starts by mentioning those, you know, sometimes the Bible say uh, homosexuality. That's a very bad translation. Paul is not condemning homosexuality. He is condemning the practice of homosexual behavior. In fact, the two terms that that are mentioned, as the ESV notes, is so uh, uh, sharply, starkly, but uh, clinically defined, are both partners in homosexual sexual actions. The giver and the receiver, so to speak. Uh, and also later on, the condemnation of, part, of, of, of participating in sexual behavior with prostitutes. In Galatians 5 and 19, uh, the, it's the beha- works of the flesh, the behaviors. Uh, sexual human behavior, sensuality, lasciviousness, or lustful behavior. So, that's the perspective of the Bible. Also by common confession, that we all recognize that's the perspective of the Bible. So the question is, which is right? Are people defined by a certain type of sexuality, or are people just exercising desires, lusts, and and behaviors? Well, in modern discourse, especially, and even sadly among those who profess Jesus, especially those who have become more accepting of, of gay relationships, the modern view of sexuality is privileged, assumed to be right, assumed to be superior to the views of those in the past, and thus provides reasons to ignore the way in which the Bible speaks about sexuality. A lot of these arguments are predicated uh, that people are using to try to justify uh, same-sex relationships biblically is to say, well, in the the time of the Bible, people just didn't understand the idea that people are gay. Which, of course, is completely ridiculous, because the Bible uh, times have lots of people who had, you know, gay relationships. Nero got married to a guy. Uh, in Symposium, you have one of the speakers wax eloquently how, at the beginning of time, actually everybody was, was a complete person. Man, man, woman, woman, man, woman. And at some terrible moment, they were separated in two, and so everybody's been looking for that other person that they were part of to find uh, that moment uh, of unity again. The man, man, woman, woman, man, woman. And, and they even used that idea of both same and different gender. So in the Greco-Roman world, certainly that was understood. It was just condemned by Paul. Condemned in Judaism. Condemned uh, for, for, for being sexually uh, immoral and lascivious. So it was un- it was known, it was just not accepted the type of behavior and and no. In, in the one sense the Bible does not betray a knowledge of people being a certain type of sexuality because that still needs to be demonstrated. And it's really a very bizarre thing, because these very same people will have a very critical eye to what the scriptures are saying about sexuality, but they do not extend the same critical eye to their own assumptions about the nature of sexuality. But there's no reason why modern views about sexuality should be thus privileged. If we're going to be good critical thinkers, we need to be critical in the exploration of all these ideas. So let's be critical for a second. What evidence exists for the view? that a person is homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, or the like. 
Well, people will point often to the fact that some people have sexual desire for members of the same gender, while most others have sexual desire for members of the opposite gender. And therefore, it seems, just on a prima facie level, uh, self-evident some people are heterosexual. Many people, in fact, are heterosexual, and a few are homosexual. But is it really that easy? Could this remain a categorical error, where we just think that so easy we're missing certain factors? And in fact, there's a lot of difficulty with this categorical understanding of sexuality, that one is what one desires. Perhaps the greatest example is Jesus of Nazareth himself. Was he homosexual or heterosexual or bisexual? Um, well, in scripture, he, uh, he's none of the above. He's asexual. He, he probably had sexual desire, based upon the idea that he was tempted in all points, but without sin, in Hebrews 4.15. Uh, but whatever sexual desires he would have experienced are not recorded, and they, most importantly, did not define him. Well, what about infants or toddlers? How can they be homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual? They shouldn't be sexual at all. They're asexual. And it's just in, in the scientific literature, psychological literature, and in, 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 in playing experiences that it's well known that there are a lot of humans, both men, boys and girls, who when they go through puberty, go through this uh, experience in this during the hormonal change where for a brief time they go through a phase of sexual interest in or experimentation with members of the same gender. Now, if a person goes through this phase, does this person be forever identified as homosexual? Because... For most people, that phase passes. And that's why it's so disturbing to see the prevalence of so many people starting to try to define people's sexuality during very formative years, uh, assuming that the way that they feel now is the way they're going to continue to feel for the rest of their lives. How can we be so certain of that? And beyond that, it's very interesting that YouGov just came out with some surveys in the United Kingdom and the United States. It's very interesting to note the results of this survey that a large percentage of younger people and an increasingly higher percentage of people as you go down the generational scale from the oldest generation to the youngest generations will no longer identify themselves as exclusively heterosexual or, for that matter, exclusively homosexual, but have identified themselves somewhere along the quote-unquote bisexual spectrum. Now, in the United States, it's 8% or less of those over 45, 24% of those 30 to 44, and 33% of 18 to 29-year-olds. In the UK, it's even more stark. 7% of those over 60, 16% of those from 40 to 59, 29% of, the percent of those 25 to 39, and up to 43% of those 18 to 24. Now, they may not feel that bisexual, but somewhere on that spectrum. Now, keep in mind, we have this conversation, that we're being told these days that the average baseline for the homosexual population is not 10%, as Masters and Johnson suggested, but actually something more like 4%. That if you're going to say somebody who is born with desires for members of the same gender exclusively, you're looking at about 4%. Now, if sexuality is a fixed part of identity, why do we see a large number of people, well more than 4%, who are increasing toward a variety of sexual preferences. And not only that, but also one that almost perfectly mirrors the growing acceptance of various forms and expressions of sexuality and culture. 
that you look at all those generations as the time has gone on, as you know, it, it should be not surprised that the greatest generation and the boomers have the least amount of fluidity. That the boomers though have more fluidity than the uh, the, the older ones, and that the Xers are having a little bit more fluidity, but the millennials have the most fluidity of all. What does that mirror? Culture doesn't necessarily mirror biology. The biology has not changed, but it mirrors culture. And in fact, even within the GLBTQ community, or LGBTQ community, there is starting to become a greater recognition that human sexuality is fluid. And so the question has to be begged. If our sexuality shifts over time, and if sexuality is fluid, and if openness to forms of sexuality is strongly influenced by cultural trends, how can the argument be sustained that we are, in fact, our sexuality and our sexual behavior? Do we really wish to strongly define ourselves in terms of the people with whom we have sexual intercourse? Is that our defining characteristic in life? Let's be honest. Sexual desire and sexual behavior are important aspects of life. And anything of importance is going to influence our identity. But it's important to note that in Scripture, God never defined anyone by their sexuality. No one was, is, or will be asexual, bisexual, heterosexual, or homosexual according to God or Scripture. In Scripture, humans are sexual creatures, and they have sexual desires, and they elect to act according to those sexual desires. So we see in Genesis 1, the way we were created, chapter 24, and as Paul establishes 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9, that God has made both man and woman in his image, that he intends for the two to become one flesh. Man and woman can become one flesh only with each other, for attempts at male-male or female-female connection are impossible, or a parody of one flesh, and not truly reflecting the full image that God intended by making man and woman complementary in that way. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, chapter 2 and 24. And that sexual desire for and sexual behavior with members of the same gender, according to Scripture, are a result of the corruption and decay to which creation has been subjected because of sin and death. And it's manifest because God has given people over to their desires because they have not honored Him as God. In Romans 1, 18-32, 5, 12-21, 8-18-25. And we've talked about this at greater length uh, previously when we discussed sexuality in light of the fall. Now, for that matter, sexual desire and or sexual behavior with members of the opposite gender to which a person is not married, with multiple members of the opposite gender, with family members of the opposite gender, etc., are also condemned, are also a result of sin and death in the world, the corruption of creation, and people who have been given over to their desires in Romans 1, 5, and 8. So this is very important, very important point here. Wherever you fall on the issues of our culture, please respect this that to impose categories of homosexual, heterosexual, etc. on a scripture is completely anachronistic. In the Bible, heterosexuality is not automatically good. Sexual desires are not always legitimated. And as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, the goal that God has for everybody is that they are all to maintain his or her body in purity and chastity, and not to abuse the body with sexual behavior according to the passions of lust like the Gentiles do. To condemn lust for members of the same gender and homosexual behavior is absolutely not the same thing as condemning someone who has some homosexual desires and is not at all equivalent with bigotry and discrimination against a group of people on account of identity matters beyond their control. Now, while people may privilege their sexual behavior as a major part of their identity, and you can have a group of people that create and facilitate a subculture surrounding that behavior, 
that still does not automatically mean that people are that behavior. Because nobody has to understand themselves primarily or even strongly in terms of the gender of the persons with whom they have sexual intercourse. Do we really want to live in a world where we are defined by the gender with whom we have sex? Now again, I want to be very clear about this. Human beings have sexual desires. And many, and in fact most, do not actively choose the people whom they desire. A lot of times, Christians have gotten themselves in trouble for saying that homosexuality is a choice. And it's a fair question. After all, at what point did most of us actively decide that we were going to start choosing to desire members of the opposite gender? What morning did you wake up? Well, I'm going to start lusting after girls. Or for a girl, yeah, I'm going to start lusting after guys. No, You don't wake up and have that feeling most of the time. On the other hand, the evidence for biological determinism of sexuality was never very strong to begin with, and it's getting weaker. Yes, there has there is some genetic basis for the formation of sexual desire. But let's be honest. Sexual desire also is influenced by environmental factors. Somebody's life experiences, their education, their parental heritage, cultural attitudes, and things like that. There are some people who have changed their preference, either becoming more open to a more fluid expression of sexuality, or who feel more strongly with sexual desire from another gender than before. That has happened. It may not happen in all circumstances, but it has happened. Human sexuality is far more complicated, no doubt, than the identity politics as they are presently understood. That's why it's not wise to base our understanding on human sexuality on the premise that we are our sexual preferences. So yes, we have considered the premise that human beings are to be defined by the gender or genders with whom they desire to have sexual intercourse. Yes, identity is a very fluid concept, full of different emphases, very much conditioned by environmental and cultural factors. That a person's sexuality, both in terms of its desire and its expression, is probably partly based in one's genetic wiring, absolutely, but also partly based in one's environmental factors from the beginning of life until the present moment. And that's why we need to push back against this cultural imposition of sexuality in these categorical terms, that you are bisexual, heterosexual, homosexual, or something like that. Instead, as human beings, we are all sexual creatures, in Genesis 1 and chapter 2. We have been made in the image of God, and we seek relational unity to find that sublime expression of paracritic relational unity and sexual intercourse of two becoming one flesh, Genesis 2 and Matthew 19. Yes, human sexuality has been corrupted by sin and death because we have fallen short of God's glory. It's subject to corruption and vanity in Romans 5 and 8. And therefore, humans are going to experience corrupted sexual desires. They're going to be tempted to participate in corrupt sexual lust and behaviors in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and Galatians 5. God calls all Christians to sanctification, to abstain from corrupt lust and behaviors, to maintain our bodies in purity and integrity, in 1 Thessalonians 4-8. If we experience corrupt sexual desire, we can resist that temptation to turn that desire into lust and into behavior. In James 1, 13 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that, all, that we can overcome temptation. Corrupt sexual desires, lusts, and behaviors may involve members of any gender. And that is why we must affirm God's teachings about humanity and sexuality to pursue sanctification and glorify God for the proper exercise of sexuality in our bodies. We're again very glad that you've spent this time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged and given something to think about by uh, 
our exploration of sexuality and identity. Perhaps you'd like to talk more about it. Maybe you have uh, some disagreements. Wouldn't be surprising at all. Uh, if you'd like to talk more about this or maybe some other issue, maybe you're struggling with something, maybe you just need to talk or have a prayer request, please let me know. Please contact me through our website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And maybe you'd like to learn more about the Venture to Christ. You'd like to come visit our assemblies uh, or check out some of our Bible studies. Please find us online at venturechurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.